All right, we're good to go. All right, welcome back to another episode of Persuasion by the Pint. I'm Jonathan Taylor, along with Sean McCool. And Jonathan, today we got a guest in the green room, just eager, ready to come out. Yeah. Um, People may book. notice your voice sounds just a little bit different today, yeah. especially our loyal listeners. <laughs> Dude, um, using some different equipment today. Um, yeah, yeah. Had a little power outage at the office, so I had to quickly yeah. make a detour and go back to the house. That's so right. That's, that's why, why you. Sounds that's why you keep all the backup gear around, right. so you can do in case something like this happens. I'm yeah. using a little uh, Audio Technica headset mic. This is what I used at the um, conference, the trade show. Uh, it's what you use for Call of Duty, right? That's right. Here. Call of Duty, Playing man. Your, doing your video games. <laughs> I got you. I got you. Um, yes. Yeah, we're going to be talking about... Um, so the title today is uh, How the World's Greatest Communicators Convince, Inspire, Lead, and Sometimes Deceive. Um, it comes from a new book uh, from our guest called The Rules of Persuasion. Um, so we're happy to uh, have him on this brand new book. I know... You, John, you had the opportunity to talk to him a little bit before I came on. So, um, yeah, quite the, quite, he's got a lot of books coming out. So, we yeah, have to have him back on. Not all of them are in our, our niche, but he has all of a sudden turned into a prolific writer, it looks like. So, yeah, it's cool to have, have him on. Why don't we just go ahead and bring him on? Yes. Uh, let's welcome him to the show. Carlos, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Carlos, how do we, how do we say your last name? Uh, exactly how it's written. Alvarenga. Alvarenga. Okay. Got it. All right. Alvarenga. So, um, so your book caught my attention. Uh, this is, I mean, this is brand new. It's on Amazon. Um, and Sean, I don't know if we can pull up the page here in a second so our yeah, listeners can see it, but, um, Interesting subtitle, uh, how the world's greatest communicators convince, inspire, lead, and sometimes deceive. I like that at the very end. Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes, occasionally. That's right. That's the table of contents. So here's the book on the old Amazons. Yes. And it's on, uh, it's on Kindle. It's also audiobooks. I did the narration for audiobooks, which was an interesting. Oh, cool. So Ooh, whatever yeah, what was that like? How was that? Is that like it, really intensive? How long does it take? It took a week and it's very intense. As you know, you're in a soundproof booth and any, the microphone's so sensitive that any noise your clothing makes or your stomach makes or your chair makes gets picked up and you got to cut and come back to the top and so of the paragraph. Oh, and man. It, uh, yeah, it's a nerve wracking experience. I was glad when it was over and I lost what? my. Yeah, because if you're not used to talking for how, how many hours at a time did you do it? We're doing 12 hours a day. Oof. Wow. Uh, for four days yeah so if you're not used to that much talking definitely that could i could see how you could lose your voice pretty quickly in that i guess i'd have to just go in there naked so i didn't make my clothes didn't make any noise i, I wouldn't want to do the retake so but if you're hungry your stomach takes over so then they oh, give you a man. so yeah it was uh <laughs> how many hours know. how many hours did that take you they said it took it took almost four days doing five hours a day between some takes. Oh, and takes. Man, you, you also got... have to control the tech right because it's not on teleprompter, so there's a little iPad below the mic. Yeah, and you have to use your finger, and if your fingernail touches the screen, it picks it'll be picked up. So you got to cut wow. back. So wow, it's a very process to make it sound. Yeah, because if you have any little uh, any noticeable noise or anything like that, somebody's you can't right. have that because that'll 
somebody will just leave a comment on Audible. Ah, oh, I just hated the sound. Production was terrible. <laughs> production like was terrible. One, I didn't like his voice. You ever see that hours. on Audible where there's like, oh, I the book was great, but I just did not like his voice. I could not make it through this the uh, the, the I, author's now, voice. Now, to be fair, I've had a couple, not very many, but I have had a couple of those where the they just pick the wrong person to narrate. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Occasionally that can happen. Anyway, it was an interesting process. Yeah, yeah it sounds like it. So, yeah. Well, well, Carlos, I know you have a beverage there, so we let our guests kind of um, talk about the beverage first. So, tell okay. us what you got. You've got a, you've got a soft spot, I think, for this one as well. I right? do. I, I worked in Belgium for two years, so I have a soft spot for anything from that country, and I love Lefe. This is the classic Ooh. Lefe, twelve forty AD, right? Second beer they created, mm-hmm. and still going strong whatever it is, like 900, 800 years later. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I think of the quote on our shirt is, uh, what is it? Life is, I can't read it upside down. I don't remember what it says, but something is an old quote from an old beer guy. Plato actually. That's probably pre beer. Life is better with beer. Something like that. (laughs) Yeah. You've got the right glass there. Perfect. Love it. So what part of, uh, what part of Belgium? In Ghent. Oh, okay. I spent some time in, uh, you know, Sean and I both served in the military. I was stationed overseas, and I spent some time in uh, over. I was stationed in Germany, but I loved going over to places like Brussels, and um, you know, spent some time over the Netherlands. And right, just, yeah, that's right. You know, it's two hours away, so yeah, it's gotten in Ghent, Bruges, right? I, I yeah. love that area. is called Flanders, and it's one of my favorite parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. I've never been to Europe. I got to get over there someday. The roots here. All these people talk about it. (laughs) Well, well, Jonathan, what do you have there? All right. So today I've got, I'm excited. I've got a a Kentucky bourbon barrel, but this is different, Sean. This is a new series. It's a, it's a cocoa porter. My thing's blurring it out. There we go. A cocoa porter. Um, It's a 8%. I don't know a whole lot about it other than the fact that it's, it's a Kentucky bourbon series and it said cocoa. Porter, so I guess I said, "Yep, that's got to come on the show for sure." Yeah, so a little chocolate, a little yeah, porter. That should be pretty good. Mm-hmm. Should be pretty. Yeah, because I mean, we've had all. I mean, I think we've gone through the gamut on the Kentucky mm-hmm. Bourbon Barrel, but this is—I th- know this is new. I, I, I've never had this one. You or I have never yeah. had this one. So, yeah, and the porter will be a little bit lighter than a stout, so that should be yep. interesting to see mm-hmm. how that plays together. So. All right. Well, since we're having Thanksgiving, the week that this comes out, you know, we're, we're a week before <laughs> right. we're recording. Yep. I thought, why not just go crazy? Because we're all going to be eating a crazy amount of food next week, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I found this one jumped off the shelf at me. It's a it's TP beer. It's called Fist Bumps. Fist Bumps. And it is a, <laughs> uh, the tagline is say cheesecake and die. And it is a... Uh, is a raspberry cheesecake inspired hazy triple India pale ale. Wow. Sounds like a Starbucks order, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm not <laughs> so I'm not so um, sure about that one, Sean. <laughs> so it's a little little murky, but um the triple I usually am okay with the triples. Yeah. I don't like pale ales usual, but usually a triple they so this one's ten and a half percent. So it should uh all right, hold that up again. Okay. Carlos, would you hold yours up please? He's and got a Belgian, yeah. Look at that. All right. Look at the variety the of colors. The full color. gamut right there, right? So <laughs> we got the full variety of colors. Uh, all right. All right. Well, let's uh, oh. cheers it up. You have your soundboard? 
Yes, I yes, sure do. do. I've got a backup soundboard. All right. And uh, well, I've got all the sounds. Yep. Cheers. Oh, wait. I don't have the clink. So I'm oh. going to say clink. Clink. <laughs> this one doesn't have the clink on it. Sorry, I've got Carlos. Some. No problem. <laughs> chin chin, as we say in uh, Latin yeah. America. Oh. All right. So, Carlos, um, we rate these on a scale of one to five pints. You can use decibels as many as you want. Um, what would you rate that on a scale of one to five? Five being the best. For me, it's a four. Uh, not perfect, but very good. A very drinkable kind of a go-to. Absolutely. Good yep. standard. Always keep it in the fridge. Absolutely. So, Jonathan, how's that cocoa porter treating you? Mm, it was very good. Very good. I'm going to give this one a four seven. Wow. Um, it is, is good. super good. Very smooth. I know smooth is real, really broad. I mean, that that's such a lame term nowadays. Like that can yeah. mean anything, but <clears throat> but I don't know. It's just very um, no aftertaste, not bitter. Yeah. There's no bitter chocolate. It's just a nice, not overly sweet either. So yeah. So mine is it's very hoppy, but it's got a strong like sweet finish to it. So the hop is immediately replaced with like the sweetness. So I actually, I actually like it. I like the because it is a juicy India Pale Ale. Um, I think or hazy, hazy. But I'm going to say this is a four, which for a ale in our India Pale Ale in our world, that's that's pretty high. So oh yeah, um, pretty good. Yeah, actually. that's that's pretty good. I mean, yeah, for an IPA. Of course, yeah. it's it's not your standard IPA, but right, it's a triple, so it's yeah. got a little more sweetness and alcohol and stuff going on in it. But yeah, it's actually pretty good. So very All good. Right. Well, Carlos, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I know you and Sean talked before the, the show started. Uh, I'd like love to learn a little more about your background. And if you would just uh, let's Carlos, start there. In a, yeah. In a nutshell, I, I started originally as a journalist. Mm-hmm. I came to the U.S. as a refugee as a kid. Grew up here, went to school here, went back to my native El Salvador after the Civil War ended in the 90s. And, was a journalist for a couple of years covering the post-war period. Came back to the U.S. when a friend of mine's boss was looking for a ghostwriter. So I ghosted a book. And when I finished the book, he hired me into his consulting firm. Had a long career as a consultant. A few years ago, I decided to, to get off the road and to write. And so I, I, I just became a full-time writer and wrote three books. The first of the three books is came out this year, which is my first nonfiction book, which is The Rules of Persuasion, mm-hmm. we're just talking about today. Yeah. And so two more that will be out next year, but this is the first and yeah. a very interesting topic. So I noticed I <clears throat> I caught your the conversation you and Sean had on the process of writing. I've I've written a few books myself and, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. it's 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 a it's a kind of a it's a love hate to me. I mean, everybody's got their own opinion, but it's kind of a love hate uh, relationship for me when I did it, because part of me, I'm a procrastinator on certain things, uh, by nature and writing is one of them. So I don't know about yourself. Some people, it just comes natural, but, um, I do agree with you. Like the technology that we have today with AI and transcription, it's so easy, so much easier to get your content out and to, you know, put that into a, a book format today than it was even 10 years ago. Well, for me, I, I think it, it's, it comes sort of naturally to me. Yeah. That doesn't mean that you like it, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yep. Dorothy Parker said, I, I hate writing, but I love having written. 
Yeah, that's yes. right. <laughs> so the, the process is painful. It's lonely. You yeah. Yourself yeah, I, I think have- I think that's it. You nailed it. It's lonely because no one, as you're writing, no one's giving you feedback, right? Or as you're putting that together, no one's giving you feedback on the moment, you know, at the time. Hey, that sounds good. You're just kind of, you know, you're kind of all to yourself during that process. So You're exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I mean, when I write copy, I, I, I kind of know I'm on the right track if I'm still interested at the end in what I wrote, you know? Sure. Yeah. So if I can sell myself during the process, then I usually have a good, a good piece. I don't know if that's similar for you, Carlos. Like if you still love the topic when you're done, you probably, probably got it right. Or are you tired of the topic? Well, you're, you're both right. Uh, I I was, that I have a very good editor, um, my own personal editor, there's a professor named James Arietti. He's a, Mm -hmm. he's a classic scholar. And so he read everything. So I wanted to make sure that if I was writing about Aristotle and rhetoric, that it, that a professional scholar would read it and say that part you got right. So, uh, right. So that was, uh, that was good feedback and he's a very tough critic. But the other day, when you're done, it, it can be a hundred thousand words about persuasion. You say, "I don't want to talk about this anymore." <laughs> but this is such an interesting topic yeah. that once I get into it, it all comes back, and then I then I get into it again, right? So yeah. don't get me started. I won't talk about it. But once I once you do, <laughs> yeah. And, so and yeah, we're gonna we'll be talking about it here. So what? let's let's jump into it because yeah, I was just I did not get a chance to read the book in full disclosure um, yet. Um, <laughs> I caught your summary, I was, though. I was going through the, you know, table of contents and just kind of looking at that. And I love the, I don't think I've seen a a book on persuasion that kind of covered the breadth that you covered. Mm-hmm. Um, why did, tell us a little bit about, you know, why you chose persuasion? Because I'm also looking at your other books that are coming up and they're nothing to do with persuasion. No. It's not like you're a, a persuasion guy or a marketing guy or whatever. No. Why did you decide to tackle persuasion in the first place? I chose it because a couple of years ago, three years ago, I, I wanted to volunteer. Mm-hmm. When I stopped traveling, I, I wanted to work with nonprofits. So there's a website called Catchifier, and I went on, and they match you with projects. And the mm-hmm. very first project I got was a gentleman, a very senior gentleman in the 70s, who's, who's the leader, chairman and CEO of this very amazing international belief organization. And his project, that his request was something like this, help, I'm boring. I'm a terrible speaker. I can't stay on script, and my staff has had it, and they're forcing me to come on here and, and get help. And when I talked to him, and he's in uh, in Europe, and I, I realized two things. One was he he hadn't understood that there are really two kinds of speakers, at least what I'd seen. What sort of like what I call jazz musicians that sort of give them a theme they can kind of improvise. Right? It's never the same speech twice, but it's but it's always the same message. Right. Then there are the classical musicians who can read a script word by word, sort of note for note, and it's always the same. They're amazing. They can deliver the same thing as if it was you're watching a video, right? So I said, look, you're a jazz musician. Stop trying to play Bach. Mm-hmm. That's the first issue. Second issue is you haven't, I watched videos of him and I realized you haven't thought about what you're trying to do, which you're trying to persuade people to donate to, support, join, work with your organization. And that's not coming across. You're, you're, you're not using all of the things that you could be using. And so I said, give me a week and I'll be back and let's do something. So I, I dusted off a book from college called Aristotle's Rhetoric, <laughs> which is a classic work on persuasion. And I made it into a PowerPoint deck. Mm-hmm. And I said, let's go through this deck. And I think at the end of the deck, you'll understand what persuasion is. So 
long story short, it was a hugely successful project. He was very happy. Asked me to have a second project uh, for a hospital he was launching. Long story short, a year after I spent about a dozen of these projects coaching leaders on what persuasion was, and my wife said, you need to write this down because you're doing a great job explaining to these people what this is. And I, at first I said, no, then she talked me into it. And so uh, <laughs> uh, I wrote an outline. A friend of mine's an author. He showed it to his agent and he said, if you write the book, I can get it sold. Wow. I give it the book. Yeah. He sold it. And it came out on August 8th. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. What does your wife do? Because you mentioned when we were talking before that she kind of also told you when to stop the book. What type of work does uh, she do that she's a... She's a scientist. She's a, a, a trained as a doctor, as a neuroradiologist. And then she okay. became a researcher at NIH in Bethesda, Maryland, which is where okay. we live. She studies uh, infectious disease impact on the brain. Oh, Very wow. Person. Yeah. She's the star of the family. Yeah, a lot of brain power in this house. So. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so, um, all right. Well, let's jump in. Um, you know, it's your book, Carlos. Yep. So, you know, do you want to start with kind of giving your definition of persuasion and kind of work through some of the, yeah. the, the ways I, it shows up? Sure. And I'll start by using three words that I only use once in my book, but you guys probably have heard a million times. And that's ethos, pathos, logos, right? Mm -hmm. This okay. is the, the great Aristotelian quote from the rhetoric. And I've, I've seen it used many, many times in many, many places, uh, which is great, except for one thing. Aristotle never explains what those are. <laughs> you know, because why? Because because the rhetoric was not a book to be read by the public. We're not exactly sure what it is. It was either a private notebook, teaching notes, or maybe like class notes for his students at the academy. So it wasn't written to be read by a regular person, right? And so, and Aristotle had a weird trait, which was the more obvious something was, the less he explained it, which is makes studying him a little bit complicated. Yeah, right, because he, he was just assuming, yeah. he's assuming and his audience knew stuff, right? Right, so that's why when you read those articles, they don't go beyond that sentence because there's nothing to go on. So my curiosity was, well, wait a minute, what does that actually mean, right? And part one, the other question I, why I had was, I, I began to look at books on persuasion. What I found was that most of them were not about persuasion at all. They're often about manipulation or psychology or kind of human behavioral traits that you can use to manipulate people or to get certain kinds of reactions. I couldn't find a book that explained exactly what persuasion is. So I, you know, the old saying, if you can't find something you want to read, just write it. So that's, <laughs> I wanted to understand, well, what do you mean by right. character, argument and emotion? And also what exactly is happening when someone's persuaded? And that was the genesis of the book. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you use some examples <clears throat> in the book. I'm curious because Sean and I have talked about some of the great speeches. I think we did a podcast, Sean, if you remember on mm -hmm. some of the great speeches throughout history. And I know you talked, uh, you referenced the Abraham Lincoln yeah. um, and his power of rhetoric, rhetoric and persuasion. Talk about that. I mean, what are some traits that maybe you can highlight with him that were so powerful that, you know, gave him the ability to, I guess, persuade a, a country in, in so many words. I mean, just, I mean, just, you know, we've all read the Gettysburg Address, and I think we actually talked about that in some of our speeches, and then J the speech by JFK was very 
persuasive and powerful. Um, so I guess maybe just what are your thoughts on that? Yes, yeah, so I'll ask that. And, but first, I'll, I'll give a, a quick recap of the, the basic argument of the book. Because yeah. that will then explain uh, the Gettysburg Address. So what I say in the book is, if we take character, yeah. argument, and emotion, we can divide each into seven pieces, mm-hmm. right? So this is just my my arbitrary decision. So I call them elements. The character is a mode, it has seven elements. Argument is a mode, it has seven elements. Emotion is a mode, it has seven elements. These 21 elements, I say, make up what I call the periodic table of persuasion. <laughs> and, sure. and I even have a picture and I go, there isn't a single message made by one human being for other human beings that I believe can't be explained as some combination of these 21 elements. Okay. Mm. Okay. And so I, I don't care whether it's a commercial for the Super Bowl or the platonic dialogues or even paintings, music. Uh, when a great communicator is really doing a great job, there is this chemistry that's created. So you combine and recombine these elements like a chemist would, and you create a reaction in the audience, which persuades them. The key point is that if it's chemistry, it's amoral. Chemistry is used to make medicine. It's also used to make poison. Yeah. Likewise with rhetoric. We can yeah. use persuasion to poison a people or to do wonderful things. When Lincoln gave that speech, the context was that uh, the North had won the Battle of Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. He wanted his general Meade to chase Lee and to stop him from getting back to the South. Uh, Meade refused. He thought it was just going to be too much of a hassle and there was too much he had to take care of, so he didn't, mm-hmm. which meant that Lee escaped to Virginia and the war would continue. A lot of people in the North are very upset. They wanted Lincoln to cut a deal. So when he went to Gettysburg, he had to make an argument, a persuasive comment of why the war must continue. And if you look at the Gettysburg Address, almost every single word falls into one of these three modes. He starts by talking about the character of him and of the nation. He makes an argument about that about loyalty and fealty and duty. And he ends this remarkable emotional plea, you know, one nation of the people, for the people, for the people. So it is uh, like really great messages, a perfect synthesis of character, argument, and emotion. And that's why it stands the test time, right? It's the greatest American speech by a president. Yeah. Yeah. And so short, too. Yep. Right. Two, two minutes and 24 seconds, I think. Right. A lot yeah. of people spoke that day. I think the president of Harvard spoke for two hours. Nobody remembers what he says. Yeah. But uh, but his words, Nickens' words are, it, it, there have been whole books written about that speech. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and yeah. the amount of, the amount of stuff that was packed into that is just, you know, it's unbelievable. It's kind of like the I Have a Dream speech from Martin yeah. Luther King, um, you know. And he wasn't a person that had a, I mean, he was, you know, he was a tall character, but he didn't necessarily, from everything that I've read about Lincoln, he didn't have a really commanding voice. I mean, it was kind of a high-pitched, a little bit of a high-pitched voice, quite honestly. Um, something he didn't he, have charisma, necessarily. Right, well, another thing, didn't, didn't have like the charisma. He was kind of an awkward uh, person. But he had character, right? Yeah. The, the, the character that he had, which is which is a thing. You know, character, I, I say in the book that one of the things that's interesting about character, about character, one of the elements is called status, mm-hmm. right? So status is interesting because status is the, the power or fame of the speaker relative to the audience. Yeah. Okay. So status is interesting because it, it, it works bi-directionally. In other words, it can persuade because I I emphasize my status, 
I'm the CEO, you're my team, mm -hmm. right? So I make it clear that I'm speaking with status, but status also works in reverse. I can negate status. For example, when we see the Pope yeah. wash the Pope in his feet, right? When we see undercover boss, the, the boss becomes a quote unquote regular person. It mm -hmm. works in reversal. And so I, I think Lincoln had a remarkable character that if you're not a charismatic speaker, you can nonetheless still use the element of character in a very powerful way, which is what I think he he does in his um, in his orations and in, in his in his communication with people. So how many you said there's, you know, seven elements in each of these categories? Yeah. Mm -hmm. How many do you typically need in each category to to persuade? You just need one? Do you need two or three of each? Like how does it, it, it really can be done only with with one if you're that skillful, right? So okay. uh, typically you see them in combinations. But and I also what I, what happens is that people, most people who I've coached or, or, or I talk to, what I realize is that they're not very good at the three. <laughs> and so, uh, for example, people are sometimes taught don't be part of the story, right? Which means you take character out. And this is a very common thing that I grown into. And I go, well, look, why wouldn't you? Aristotle says this is of the three, this is the most powerful thing. So let's <laughs> let's figure out how do we how do you as a deliverer of the message add to its persuasive power? Emotion is the other one, right? Emotion is a very tricky thing to get right. And so people who have tried it and failed then get scared of it. And so they leave that out. So I say it's like a shit with three masks, but only one sail doing all the work. Mm -hmm. And so after a while, the sail gets tattered which is why you see so many bad presentations and so much bad arguing because it's hard to get right, it's overused. And the thing that could be helping you be persuasive, for example, your own story, the things that define who you are, or some emotional component is left out. And oftentimes one very well-crafted character statement or emotional appeal is all you need. You should not have to cover, do the whole job, but it can do a lot of the lifting for you, right? And emotion is best used when it, um, there was a commentator, a medieval commentator, Arab commentator on Aristotle, and he said, emotion is best used when it's when it closes the deal, right? When it sort of finishes the job that character and argument made. And I think that's really the case. That's why you often see it at the beginning or at the end of a message. Mm -hmm. Right, either emotional hook, right? To get people interested or kind of a emotional call to action at the end of some help time. help right help right, mm -hmm. right. help me yeah Boom. right, that, right? <laughs> and so that emotional appeal now well what do you need help with right and so okay let me tell you what i want to say or at the very I, end in movies typical thing right this is emotional swelling at the end of a film and uh, one thing i talk about in the book is a very tricky thing which is the difference between sentiment and emotion uh, sentiment being a feeling what you feel is fake not really earned, an emotion, a feeling which is which felt authentic. And I talk about two movies in the book, Shilliness List and Saving Private Ryan, mm. because they both end in the exact same way. They both end in a scene that begins in the past and moves to the present. They both end in cemeteries. They both end right with a view of the main character dead in front of you, the tomb. They were shot by the same three people, same director, same cinematographer, I think same screenwriter, same composer. One worked Shinnot's list and was praised. One was panned by the critics, which is Ryan. And one is sentimental and one is emotional. Sure. The tricky element of emotion. Mm -hmm. hmm. Interesting. Have you found that 
um, certain cultures are better at one of the three, like, are we in the West typically really like we lean into argument more and other cultures maybe lean into emotion more or have you found that? I'm just. It is the case. And we see it in the history of the U S right. One of the things that happened here when the, when the European American settlers met natives was that you had two different conceptions of what, what was persuasive right to the native American, generally speaking, and I'm generalizing here, right. It was an right. oral culture. And so your words, if you said it, that meant it must, it must be the truth. For Europeans, it was the opposite. If you wrote it, it's what was written was accounted, right? And so there was the contract, the argument was more powerful. Uh, I'll tell you an interesting story. I have a good friend who's from Latin America, which is where I'm from. And he has, he had a, a, a child that he was, when the child was born, had a condition where the skull was not fully formed. So the baby has to wear a helmet for a year, okay? And so um, he talked about, he would fly from Boston, because it was a, at Harvard and he would go to Uruguay. And he said, on the flight from Boston to Miami, people acted as if the helmet was invisible. Not one person would ever ask about the helmet. You would think at some point somebody would say, you know, why does this baby have a helmet? Or that's a normal right. question. So yeah. the moment I get on the plane from Miami to Montevideo, that's all anybody talks about. Oh, the helmet, my cousin had a bit with, you know, how is she? Is he going to be okay? Right? So, so the there was this different, completely different perspective on what is allowed to be discussed, what's not allowed to be discussed, right? And so certain cultures emphasize character, for example, uh, again, broad generalization, Asia, I lived in Japan for a couple of years, and there is a sense of the character is a very persuasive thing, especially as you get older and a scholar, you know, an elder. Mm -hmm. In the Anglo-Saxon culture, it tends to be not that, right? It tends to be, okay, are you, are you a quick speaker? Anglo-Saxon culture values eloquence, and we, we equate eloquence with intelligence, which is not always the case. But we have this, you know, right. sort of uh, belief. Yeah. So, yeah, you're exactly right. Different cultures gravitate so, towards certain things. So that'd be good to know if you were preparing a speech for different audiences in different parts of the world or different, even just, even in the same country, but two different groups. You might want to tweak your messaging yeah. one way or the other, more emotion, more argument, things like that. You're exactly right. And I say these three modes are like dials to go from zero to 10, right? And so as you prepare to communicate, you set those dials. And sometimes you can't adjust the dial. If you make a commercial, you can't adjust it, right? Once the dial is set, the commercial yeah. goes out. It is what it is. But if you're speaking publicly, the really good communicators can tweak the dial a little bit depending yeah. on what's happening. And so they may adjust, right, to your point, Sean, like as the audience reacts, go, oh, okay, let me go a little bit more, a little bit less here and yeah. actually watch it happen if you're watching carefully as, as these skillful communicators adjust. The formula yeah. is being tweaked in front of your eyes. All right. It's almost like a an equalizer on a soundboard or something like that. You can kind of, let me pull right. up the bass a little bit. Let me... You know, because people really seem to be tapping their foot to the base. Let me put that up a little bit or whatever. So yeah, I could I could definitely yeah definitely see that. Um, well, that's fascinating. Like the the fact that you've these and and just so people know, these seven elements are not the same in the three. There's seven different elements in each of the uh, things. So like you said, twenty one different elements. Um, yeah, let's move into kind of the you know. I think you talk about in chapter five, kind of pulling this stuff together. We've touched on that a little bit. 
Um, anything you want to add there about? Yeah, I think the, in, in the first four chapters, right? Uh, well, in two, three, and four, I look at each mode one by one. Mm -hmm. So if I, if I, for example, uh, when I talk about character, I explain that in, of the seven elements of character, the most, the strongest one is what I call origin. Where does somebody come from? Mm -hmm. And I illustrate this by noting the fact, let's say you're at an airport and you, you want to you run into somebody, you start talking. Imagine that the entire world is a potential origin point of the two of you and the person, right? As you speak, you find out that, wait a minute, you're both Americans. So now the world shrank to, mm. to North America. And then you're both from Texas. And then you're both from Austin. And then you're both from this part of Austin. And then as the world shrinks, that person's persuasive potentiality increases. Mm. When you find out that you grew up across the street from each other, <laughs> you're ready to sort of believe anything this person says. And the the way that one particular thing, and, and we have in a lot of cultures about this a lot, right? So for example, tribal cultures, uh, any any group that cares where you went to school, right? Which is where your character was born. Military organizations are very, origin is very important. Where'd you go to boot camp, right? Mm -hmm. So there is a sense that the, the way, because arguments can come and go, but origin is fixed. That's why we give it so much more weight. And yeah. so... Uh, in, in the first few chapters, I, I talk about each one of these elements, but then in chapter five or six, what I do there is say, okay, we don't usually use these one by one because, because persuasion is like music. When you hear a chord, you might have eight notes, seven notes. You don't hear individual notes, you hear the whole thing, but if you change one note, the chord is different, right? And so I, I give five examples. I think the first one is the dialogues of Plato uh, then the the first years of Islam, you know, um, the birth of Islam. Then there is a an analysis of communist posters after, uh, during the cultural revolution now, um, and how the communist party used imagery to persuade people that they were a legitimate ruler and should be allowed to govern. Marvin mm -hmm. uh, Gaye's "What's Going On," which I think is a phenomenal argument that he makes about um, the state of America at that time in the seventies. And the last one is a, is a wonderful video from YouTube. It is Kevin Costner's eulogy of Whitney Houston. Oh yeah. Which is a remarkable uh, mm -hmm. speech. And so, uh, and I explain how all the, the formulation that we see at work in each one of these five examples. So ancient, modern, you know. Uh, and you, um, cause we were talking about this before we got on the air here. You were, you have QR codes to a lot of these things throughout the book. So people can actually, really hear and feel not just read about but actually experience some of this stuff after you after you kind of describe it then they can actually experience it this was important to me because i i tend to use film when i talk about persuasion because most of us this is a common language right that people have right. yeah. in the west so uh, if i talk about goodfellas or if i talk about oh brother we're out now right or the godfather or star wars for example it's a common reference point. So I wanted to include the QR codes in the book. Uh, fortunately, my publisher was good enough to do that. And so there, I think there are about 40 QR codes. So as I talk about something, you can yeah. take your phone scan the code, watch the video and yep. which is the song or whatever, and then experience it. And now then I can watch it and then read it because it makes it easier that way. To understand. Yeah. I like that. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of something. Um, Bishop TD Jake said one time he, he, he said that if Jesus came back today, he'd probably be a filmmaker. Huh? 
because of the storytelling so powerful that it would be a great way to, you know, spread the message or things like that. And I thought that was an interesting idea and you kind of echoed that a little yeah. bit. I want to back up a little bit because you said something that made me think about character um, and origin. So if origin is one of the strongest things, but let's say, you know, I'm from the South, I mean, live in Texas, I grew up in Georgia, Southeast. If I wanted to give a talk in inner New York, not inner New York City, but New York City business people, right? Mm -hmm. I don't have any like common origin with them. Would I tend to just skip that and pick another element or would I try to find a way to have some type of common origin? Like what is, how do you attack something like that? Where I, I think the best thing to do is not make it part of the formula, right? Leave that vial on the shelf okay. or say the fact that my origin is different makes me worth listening to mm. for some reason, right? Yeah, just, so for example, just, right. You hear that, like, I don't have your like consultants all the time, right? Oh, I'm not part of the organization, so I can look at it objectively. Right. That says my origin is different. I'm not part of you, which yeah, is why I'm, I should be more persuasive. So yeah, the, a good community can grow up with not having a common origin. Um, if you're, if you think about it just a little bit, there's usually a yeah. way. Of, yeah. yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So, I had a, um, um, I had a meeting to answer, to follow up on Sean's comment there. Um, and this is more of a one-on-one -on -one situation, but I had, I was in a meeting earlier this week up in Chicago and, you know, sometimes questions, you know, elicit answers that, you know, those origin, um, answers that you can, you know, relate to. Uh, so, you know, we were having a conversation. This is a guy that is up in Chicago, you know, um, been up, you know, lived in Chicago for 20 years, but he had, you know, he had relatives, uh, you know, after asking questions, he had, you know, relatives that lived down in Georgia and then that elicited, you know, another conversation, what part, you know, and then, so we kind of, you know, we dove into that origin, like just from, you know, a questioning, uh, you know, about further about, you know, his history, his family. And that was amazing because we were able to tie some commonalities there and it, it was, um, it was actually a great meeting just because we started off on a really good foundation of like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I know where that is. I, I know where you're from, you know, your relatives are from, even though you're from yeah. Chicago. <laughs> that's, that's that shrinking of the world. That's right. right. <clears throat> and by the way, you bring another element, which is history. So yeah. history refers to what we know about the speaker's past. Right? Mm -hmm. And uh, again, one of the other elements that works by directionally, in other words, I persuade because I confirm my history mm -hmm. or I persuade because I negate it. What does that mean? When you hear an ex KKK person talk against racism, that is a person who is negating history. Yes. I was a racist for 25 years yeah. and then I, and I renounced it. Listen to me because I, because I no longer what I was, usually we think that, okay, if you completely negate what you were, that you're no longer believable. But in this case, it is the negation of past mm -hmm. that makes you believable. Right. Because right. there's something there that made them turn that you want to know about. Like there's an yeah. unspoken secret or right. twist that happened and you're like, oh, what made him change his mind? What made this person walk away from right. everything? Or, right. That's an interesting question. Yeah. That's a very, very yeah. Uh, interesting question people want to know the answer to. So we've talked a, li a little bit about, you know, the structure. We talked a little bit about, um, you know, just kind of putting the models together. This one, when I was just scanning through the 
the chapters. Um, like I knew this, I know you always want to think about the audience, but you put it pretty early in the thing. Um, let's talk a little bit about the role of the audience. Yeah. So this is an interesting too, thing too, because I, I, I wanted to, like I said, I wanted to understand exactly what persuasion is, right? So if, if it's chemistry, then what's the formula? Like, well, what's the reaction, right? Mm -hmm. And what are the elements in the reaction is the audience. And so, because the in the chapter on the, what I call the persuasion progression, it goes something like this. It starts with what one professor or one scholar calls the pre-audience state. In other words, you walk around like a computer on screensaver. You're not really paying attention, but you're also not not paying attention, right? Right. So you're walking, suddenly I see behind you, there's a bank seat, I think, right behind you, graphic, right? Okay. So um, at that moment, I have a choice. Do I engage with the message the Banksy sent? So if I don't, I keep walking. If I do, then I begin to engage. As I engage, what happens? The message releases energy. In this case, through color, there's an argument made as well, right? There's a, that's a, that's a, there's a very political painting. And so as I consume the argument, energy is released. If I agree with it, if I react with it, I also give it energy, right? It begins to come to life. What happens eventually is that if enough energy is released, right, then you begin to believe that the message the communicator sends is true mm. or seems to be true. That is the instant where persuasion begins. When you when the image or when the message comes to life, right? It's like Frankenstein. Mm -hmm, when yeah. it comes to life, now the only thing left is adherence, I call it, which means how sticky is it? Because you might be persuaded and then it goes away tomorrow, or it might be slow, but mm -hmm. then once it sticks, it sticks for life, right? Yeah. So that's what step. So when we think about the audience, you say, okay, well, well, what kind of audiences do we deal with? When we deal with, I say in the book, four kinds. The first is deliberative, which is ourselves. We often try to persuade ourselves of things, right? So one type of persuasive setting is, is, is deliberative. You're sitting at home contemplating something. The other is what I call uh, a dialectic, which is the two of us, you and one other person. Mm -hmm. This is not a debate, it's not an argument. Dialectic means you and I are trying to find an answer or a solution together. We're working like in the, like in the Socratic dialogues. The third is a defined audience which means it's bounded. All the employees in this company, my client, right? NFL fans, it can be big, but it's defined, right? right. The last one, it's what's called um, in scholarship, the universal audience. So it means anyone who can or ever could receive your message. So, and I think back like, to when we sent those Voyager satellites, we sent two, in the 70s, right? That was literally to the universal. We hope yes. somewhere in the universe, right? Yeah. Somebody could decode our message about human life. And uh, maybe in a few thousand years, when it gets someplace, I think that's what I said, 10,000 years, they can set for lands uh, anywhere that maybe somebody can. So most people deal with defined audiences or dialectical audience, right? Your boss, your colleague, your friend, your spouse, uh, or the people at work. So you say, okay, what are the features of that defined audience? What are what kind of chemistry works in this setting? Then you begin to create the formula. Yeah. So so how is that different from 
you know, in, in marketing, for instance, and in sales, especially marketing, we talk a lot about either demographics or psychographics. Is there another layer here that you're talking about that maybe is deeper than that, broader? Oh, I think it's one step behind. So I like if, if you read books on great books on selling or negotiation, I always say it's a metaphor that goes something like this. Um, we had medicine long before we had chemistry. Okay. So those books have medicine. My book is chemistry. Okay. Right? They're putting the chemistry to work in negotiation, in selling, in whatever setting, and, and the good ones do it well. Uh, my book explains why that's a good book. Sure. Why oh, it's good to me, right? So it's one step before. It's the building blocks of a great book or class on on any anything that requires human communication. Those are applications, right? Okay. Persuasion to sell, persuasion to come to an agreement, persuasion to whatever, right? So those are the applications of chemistry. And so would it be fair to say that a lot of what's been written and the reason you wrote this is um, similar to what Stephen Covey said in Seven Habits? He was like, there's a lot of tactics going on, but there's not a lot of principles being talked about. Do you feel yeah. like there's just more principles and a lot of the other stuff is tactics? Yeah, I'd say mine is more the 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 framework mm -hmm. that that you can then use to build, right? So in other words, if you read the, my book and you said, okay, I want to build a good sales book, you could use a lot of what I say and say, I want to make sure that my sales book aligns. If I agree with Carlos's book, okay. it needs to align with the chemistry, right? Okay. Otherwise, the chemistry isn't going to work. And so um, when, I see, when I see those books, so for example, social science, right? A lot of social science research, what it tells us is that there are certain kinds of people, for example, that are predisposed to certain formulations meant to your cultures, right? So yeah. I, I think I think what that research, which is very interesting, right? Like for example, research on truth, default state, or these kinds of things, what they illuminate in modern research is why this chemistry works in a particular way in certain settings, right? Again, just like medicine, right? We know that certain medicines work better in old people versus young. Believe it or not, some medicines work better if you take them before you go to bed, others while you wake up. That doesn't alter the chemistry of the medicine. It explains why this medicine works better in this setting versus sure. that setting. Yeah. Right. Okay. Cool. What about? So let's let's apply this to uh, social media because I know you talk about this in your book and sure. how would you go about you know from you know using the chemistry <laughs> on yeah. social media platforms today when you're trying to engage an audience? How does that? How yeah, would that so, work? Yeah. So my. Uh, my editor said, if, if you're right, then it must also work on social media. And I said, well, it's, I, that was a chapter that I added because of her. Yeah. And I said, well, let's take a look. So I looked at Wikipedia. I looked at Wikipedia, Instagram, um, Twitter, now X, right, uh, and TikTok. And what I found is that each one has a dominant sort of formulation or mode. Uh, for example, Instagram, it is emotion because it's visual for the most part. You can't make complex arguments, right? Um, and it, it tends to, it tends to want, they tend to want to generate an emotional response that causes you to take, take an action, right? Because yeah. in Instagram, it's action, which really counts, not just that you like, but you share, you do something. Uh, YouTube tends to be character-based. Again, I'm generalizing. Uh, any one video doesn't matter. People, the, the big YouTube influencers make hundreds and not thousands of videos. What matters is that after you watch them all, you get to like the person. You trust the creator. 
right? You trust the person. So it's a character-driven thing. X, because it was dominated by journalists at the inception, still is, its dominant model is argument. It's a place to have art fights, and the algorithms reward argument, right? Right. You fight with somebody famous, that person responds, you get to fight with more famous people, and up you go, up the influence, right? Yeah. Uh, ladder at X is based on fighting. So while there are, uh, these are complex platforms, if you take a look at them, you realize there's a dominant algorithmic logic at work, right? And in, in the book, I look at the five, the five top tweets and they wrote the book and what you see them and I take, and I break each tweet down, right? There's Obama, there's, there was the Bobby, Chastity Bowman, which is, which when I wrote the book was the, the top tweet of all time, which is the announcement of his family that he had died from cancer. And so in each of the five tweets I look at, you can see the formulation at work exactly, like to the percentage point, right? So yeah, the, the same thing happens on social media. Uh, it's, there are also, it's... go ahead. I was going to say, it's interesting. You, you talk about the different, when you talk about the different platforms, because, and I think that's why, um, what is it? The model that, um, uh, you know, the Instagram, they, you know, they came out with threads, right? Uh, was that it? Threads? Is it threads? Their platform. It was was supposed to rival Twitter, but it's not the only one that forgot what it's. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No one remembers, but they, you know, they failed I mean, pretty miserably, but they were, I think they were trying to compete with Twitter, which as you stated is more of an argumentative, um, platform, but here, you know, to your, to what you said, you know, you're taking a platform off of Twitter or, or, um, I'm sorry, Instagram, where it's mostly image base. Um, and then you're moving that into a competition with, you know, a platform that's more argumentative, uh, I, I think it, you know, I think that's ultimately why it didn't do well because it wasn't, it, it wasn't create, you know, the people that were already on that platform were right. not, <laughs> they, they weren't ready that's for the that. That's not the way they communicated. Yeah. They, they persuaded in a different in mode. In a completely different way. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So you had this conflict of persuasion formulations yeah. that, that the algorithm couldn't handle. Right. And the users rejected. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. that continues to evolve, right? You have now what I call in the book persuasion factories. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? It means you can, I, there are, there are companies you can hire and say, here's what I want to persuade people of, right? The profession by the pine is a great show. And so what, what, what they have is a whole bunch of hundreds and hundreds of micro influencers. They see a project and they go, okay, I, I'll bid on it. Pay me a dollar for everybody who subscribes. Yeah. And so, I now distribute my persuasion effect right among hundreds of people, and the people who receive the message think it's from them, but it really isn't. I pay for all of them, right? So I can sort of outsource persuasion, I guess, in the way of thinking about yeah. it, right? which is a, it used to be the case. Cool. We've got a listener um, uh, question, don't we, Sean? Did you? Huh. Yeah, we can save for the end, but okay. um, yeah, Christopher, we'll get if, uh, if you're still listening, we'll we'll get. I think that's a good question to kind of wrap up the with. So we'll definitely get that and let you know, um, let you know here. What's, can you give us an evil? Cause I always love the, um, you know, the evil side of this, what, how it's being used and some ex- examples, um, you know, of how this is being used to manipulate people. So 
Right. So in, that, in the chapter <laughs> on the dark side, I, I, I wanted to explain for a moment that chemistry works both ways, right? Yeah. So there was a remarkable book called The Language of the Third Reich, written by a guy named Victor Klemper, who, who was a Jew who was not in the camp. He lived in Germany because he had become Christian and married a German. And so he was spared, but he was a linguist. And so uh, he kept very, very detailed diaries uh, during the time of the Third Reich. And when the war was over, he published a small book. He published many books later, but the first book he published was a book called Language of the Third Reich. And he describes the way language was used by the Nazis. And so that became, I picked that as my case study for the book. And I said, if you look at what Klemper describes, let's label these phenomena. And there were my labels, right? And I said, I'm going to talk about nine examples and give them a name. And I picked these nine because they're all at work today in American discourse, right? And one example is I call language blurring. So language blurring goes something like this. We're in a car driving through a forest and out of the corner of your eye, you see something, shiny object in the forest. And you go, did you see that? And I go, yeah, it was a guy playing the trumpet. You keep driving, five minutes, the same thing, flash. And you go, what was that? And I go, the guy playing the trombone. Last time, same thing. What was that? The guy playing tuba. Next time it happens, you won't ask what it was, but you're convinced there's a brass band in the forest. <laughs> so, language blurring, which was the most powerful thing Klemper says the Nazis did, was give you a message you weren't supposed to listen to very carefully. But you give it so often that it blurs. It's like a train going by a high speed, right? Sure. And so it just begins to work its way into your mind. And so whenever you hear people denounce something they can't explain, Mm -hmm. it's almost always the result of language blur, right? Yeah. Or let's say it's often result, which means that they've heard this is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. They don't know why or how come, or even what it is in some cases, Yeah. but they're, but they're persuaded that it's terrible. Right. And so, um, you see these, that's an example that you see today where you have people who are delivering because social media allows this, right? Because today's medium of media allows us to deliver something constantly 24 hours a day. This has become, this was rare in the past or rarer. It's one of the most common things you see today, right? As people begin to, um, and I say in the book that it is literally you're poisoning a population, right? Don't forget that right, the Germans elected Hitler. And yeah. a lot of them did what they did willingly. Mm -hmm. They weren't tricked into doing this. They were persuaded into doing this, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And uh, which is one reason why we don't study this anymore, why yeah. it was taken off the curriculum. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference between message blurring or language blurring and um, gaslighting? Mm. Uh, well, gaslighting, I, I, it, it, blurring is volume, right? So okay. message blurring requires tremendous volume. For example, it isn't the big lie, which is a, which is a single untruth magnified, right? And so gas is a different thing. It is, it is getting you to believe something that isn't true, right? Okay. So it, 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 it is the res it is a composite effect, right? That requires different things uh, okay. to, for it to work, right? Where blurring is one particular element or tactic or formulation that you see in these cases. So another one I talk about in the book is um, dislocation of value. So what does that mean? It means that it's like if I say if I change the numbers on a scale, so eight becomes nine, right? Or Five becomes three. 
So this used to be good. Now it's not. For example, in the book, he says, Hertz was a term, a measurement term. You guys know this here in broadcasting, which was named by a Jewish scientist. The Germans wanted to give it the word Hertz. <laughs> Why? Because it was a Jewish name, right? And so the paper that was a great paper about persuasion is no longer, like tomorrow they decide, hey, we don't like Hispanic authors. So my book sucks because it was written by a Hispanic author, right? So the value, yesterday was great. Everybody has to read it. Today, it's crap. Nobody should read it. So the value gets adjusted, right? And after you see this, I mean, you see this a lot, and I don't, yeah. know, I don't know if it's uniquely American history. I'm sure it's happened probably in every culture, but when immigrants came here, they would change their names so that they wouldn't carry that baggage, you know, with them of a Jewish name or Japanese name or you know Hispanic name or whatever, um, Polish, you know, whatever it was, like just to sound more American. You're exactly right. And uh, if, if you go back and look at immigration history, right, the Ellis Island era, you you would have you had this labeling, right, and this sort of dislocation of value. Oh, Italians, Irish, whatever, they're not smart enough to do American jobs, right? Right. What a hundred years, it's almost the exact same words, just replace immigrant of choice, right, with yeah. with it is, which brings up another term that I talk about, which is term linking. So term linking refers to I, I think when you join a, a word with another word, right? So um, you always use a prefix word or, or, or pre-word with the other word, right? Like if I, you know, like in the example in the book, he says, you couldn't be a Jew. It was dirty Jew. So after a while, it's like, it's dirty Jew pumper. And then we have one more, like it's like unfaithful, like a traitor, and you keep making the train longer and longer, right? And so. Whenever I hear people put a label in front of someone or something, constantly you're seeing term linking, right? And after a while, you see this. Yeah, go ahead. You're seeing this a lot in politics right now. Right now, it's maybe it's one of the most common things you see. It's a pretty clumsy strategy, but it works. Yeah, I mean that's. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean it's kind of like you know, back in high school having nicknames for people, right? Or middle school having nicknames for people, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Whatever. Mm -hmm adjective or adverb you put in front of somebody's name you know usually it rhymed or something you know with, well who was i mean name. who did john and i have talked about this you know the guy that i mean let's just name the guy trump who's you know yeah. he's kind of the at the forefront in this upcoming election and has been in the past and he's notorious yeah. for this he does the yeah. you know he he always has a nickname for all of his opponents and yeah. he just and Trump is a is a gifted persuader, right? Yeah. He, yeah. I, I've had journalists ask me, "How do you explain Trump?" And I go, "It's pretty easy." <laughs> Trump operates with two out of the three modes. Yeah, right? he has character, mm-hmm. which he protects, right, yeah. very carefully, and he has emotion. People f- enjoy how they feel, sure, when they when they're at his rallies, and so he doesn't care about argument. This is the problem journalists have. You care about argument. You right. care. Yeah, but he doesn't, and his audience doesn't. So as long as he's got two out of three, he's good. Right. All right. Have you found that's pretty true? Like, we didn't talk about that right at the beginning. Do you do you feel like two out of three is enough to persuade most people? One out of three is enough in the right hands. If you got two out of three, mm. uh, then you're usually in pretty good shape. Again, at a conference of scientists, no, right? <laughs> so, right. That's a very physics association. Sure. They're going to get yeah. far. But a political yeah. rally, he's just fine. And right. I've been seeing for a long time. People don't give him the credit that they, 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 
for for doing what he does. Right, I grew up in New York City, so I've always had since I was a kid. Trump was always a, a force mm-hmm. uh, in the universe, and even then, he was always the same way. Right, character, my my who are my identity, I garb with my life, and I want you to feel good. Mm-hmm. Right, and I say in the book, by the way, back to that question of energy, that what happens sometimes is this. Right, so let's say you've got a formula, and you think I'm going to give it just. Uh, you know, a pound, I want to release a pound of energy, whatever it is, right? You know, this much energy. And the audience will put in this much energy. That's great. Suddenly, though, it turns out the audience starts giving it more and more and more. And you don't, you're out of of control because what you did was this audience was a giant capacitor. It was a battery waiting to discharge. Mm -hmm. All it was looking for was the right chemistry. And boy, yeah. when it finds it, it's gonna rush in there, right? And go crazy. And that's exactly what happened with Trump. Yeah. Yeah. He had a formulation and he and he's always tinkering with it, right? That when it met that audience, this that audience was waiting, was waiting to release the energy. And it was that energy, that persuasive energy was released that put him in the White House and has a very good chance of, of returning it, turning him to the White House. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Because that energy is still there. It mm-hmm. hasn't it's still strong especially yeah. when you start putting the energy of the um the negative energy of the economy and prices and things like that you know which is going to favor his argument because he's not the one that is in charge right now right so you never want to be the guy in charge when the economy's bad right whether you caused it or didn't it doesn't matter you're the person in charge the buck stops with you supposedly so um yeah, that's good. So I want to get to this question um, from one of our regular listeners. They they asked, first of all, they said, great stuff. Um, love what you've done, Carlos, and how you explain Thank it you. all. We'll be buying your book. Uh, he says, I'll have to run, but I'll watch the rest later. Question, what was the most surprising thing you found when you wrote or researched for the book? <laughs> I, I think that I... I started this belief that persuasion is a kind of soft skill yeah right and i ended it thinking of it as as the opposite of that that it is chemistry with words Mm. and it is way more predictable than a lot of things we think are hard skills right i i have worked with people and and i've helped them develop messaging around stories who they are and then and i'll say I want you to say the following five things in this way. And they'll come back and say, it was amazing. People started crying. It was the best thing I've ever done. Now, people who have read the book, and I and I go, I don't take credit for that. I'm just saying that this is the chemistry. Yeah. As long as you deliver it correctly, right? And this is where storytelling, for example, right? Storytelling mm-hmm. is, a, is a persuasion delivery mm-hmm. mechanism, like a capsule. Yeah. And so like PowerPoint is. And so I go... If you got the chemistry right, it's going to work. Look, not all medicine works on all patients, but good medicine works on most patients. And so good persuasion is highly predictable, which is why we see the same formulas coming again. Like I go, we're about to go into the Super Bowl right? once every four years in America. And I tell you that 99% of the formulas we're about to see, we've seen. I can go back and find an equivalent in Andrew Jackson, right? Yeah. In Hoover, back yeah. in Washington. So the the good formulas are 
pretty consistent. Every once in a while, I was surprised also by that, that I thought, oh, there's some originality. It really isn't. Here yeah. and there, you find people doing interesting things, but for the most part, boy, this stuff goes back thousands of years across time and place. You know, I look, I look at Chinese poetry, I look at things from all over the world, and you find the same mechanisms at work. It's human beings. Yeah, it's, human yeah. it's funny you say that. I, I have people, you know, people will, you know, as things ramp up in the in the election this year, people are like, oh man, this is the nastiest election ever. <laughs> I was like, no, you have not read history in the 1800s because they were brutal in the 1800s and, sure. and we're yeah. just, and with fewer outlets to cross check, like you could get away with saying some really nasty stuff, you know, in the 1800s when there was only four newspapers in the country or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, cause it took so long to cross check and get the, get that same story back out to people. Right. You couldn't defend it as well. Uh, and because so, yeah. so much politics is runs on, on like character and emotion, right? We're, we're going to see at the, at the convention, a video with the candidate's life story. And those yeah. videos run on a formula, right? Mm-hmm. I was born on a farm, whatever. And then there's like this. And so, and I'm a great, and everybody's saying what a great person is. So it's like these testaments of character, right? And then it ends with this sort of emotional swell. So the, the formulas are there and yep. they work, right? So that's yeah. yeah, I found this um, where I learned this, like really, this really hit home for me. One in copywriting, you know, I write copy. So like, it looks very simple and very, you know, straightforward until you start getting, then you realize that the simpler the copy, the more formulaic it is, but it's also more powerful that way. There's a little bit of art to it, you know, um, and there's certain things, the rules of three and little things like that. But where I was surprised at how formulaic, and I don't know if this is a form of persuasion, but stand-up comedy. I took a class four or five years ago um, on stand-up comedy and how formulaic it is really surprised me. Mm-hmm. Like there is a formula to writing a joke and writing a set of joke, yeah. you know, a joke set. Um that I was very surprised. Just like you said, there's a chemistry to good stand-up comedy. Yeah. Um, and by the way, I, I'm a student of stand-up comedy, and uh, <laughs> I mean, my hall of fame is Pryor, uh, Dangerfield, and Norm Macdonald. Right? Yeah. So, um, and it's oh, interesting. Norm Macdonald's great. I love. I'm proud of my, uh, <laughs> uh, my, uh, for me, my my personal favorite of yeah. the three. But yeah. uh, you notice how each one also works with these three modes. Like Dangerfield was a character comic. Right. Mm-hmm. For the most part, the, the, you know, it's a finely honed machine, right? And, and uh, it, it was based on on him as this sort of, right, failed human being in, in many cases, yeah, right? Right. <clears throat> right. If you look at Pryor, right? Pryor was different. And so Pryor was almost was almost theater, right? He, he built these, these uh, Yes, the, he was known for like Willie the Wino and these kind of characters, but there was this emotional component, right? Um, and he was making complex arguments sometimes in, in comedy. Maybe he why he's the greatest, right? And nobody's gotten to that point. So I, I think that there is, um, even within comedy, right? As you look at the great comics are are trying to persuade you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. No and, doubt. Uh, I mean, Dave Chappelle is probably the best example of that mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. Right? where he puts a lot of argumentation into his comedy. Um, where would you say, so I think probably the hottest comic right now is Nate Bart Getze. Are you familiar with him? The Tennessee kid? I'm not. Uh-uh. Um, he's probably the hottest guy right now. And I was going to, I was going to ask you where you think he might fall, but that might be one for you to look up after the show. Carlos is Nate right. Bart Getze. 
Um, he's definitely the hot guy, hot guy. He was on SNL mm. three, three weeks ago or so did really, really well. Um, you know, one other thought here on this is that somebody asked me in thinking about my book versus other books like Chaldini's book and other books are right on. And, and I agree. So look, the, the thing for me, when I back to like the things that I was surprised by, I wrote at the end of the book, like, why does persuasion matter to us? Like, what is it that we yes. try to do? And I say it's because there's, we want our truths to be by laid by others. Yeah. Right. Big truth and little truth. If, if I tell you I like Norm MacDonald and he's the best comic, it matters to me <laughs> that you sure, agree. Yeah. Yeah. So this beer is really great. Like this, we have this, we want what we believe to be true, to be believed by others to be true. Right. And that's to me the the like the fundamental human element of persuasion is that we hold these truths to be self-evident, right? Mm-hmm. What are they saying? They're saying what well, we think is true, you should think it's true. And so I think that's a that's an interesting thing of we and what, want- do, what do you th- what do you think the the core human desire is there that underlies that that wanting to be able to persuade people? That what we think is true. It goes back to something else. Aristotle said, "What he said, man's a political animal." I think we want to be part of a society. Yep, a tribe. The minute, minute we agree, we're united. Yeah, yep. and so we're we're linked in some way, and that's a fundamental human need. We want to be attached and connect to others, and persuasion connects us to others. Yeah, yeah. Something I hadn't thought about until you asked me that question. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, yeah, it's that tribal. We're in this together. Yeah. Like, We're in this together. Right. Yeah. And I'm not alone. Yeah. Probably even a more primal way to yeah. say it. I'm not alone. That's a nice word. Not alone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's really what all, I guess, all persuasion kind of boils Sean, down do you to, remember, do you remember, I know you remember Larry Munson because it's not that. Oh, yeah. So Sean and I, we talk about the, the, the Georgia, because we talk, we're college football fans, so we talk about the Georgia Bulldogs. But they, one of their long time, he's no longer alive. But one of their long time announcers, Larry Munson, uh, I just I heard some some comments about him this week that was interesting. You know, he's really regarded as one of the great play by play, you know, college football commentators. Um, and I think part of it was, you know, they talked about his, he had this remarkable ability to make himself, uh, make you feel like he was, he was part, you know, he was just kind of sitting in your living room. Like, you know, he would always say, we, you know, like you see a lot of announcers today say, you know, they're very polished and very, you know, scripted Especially the broadcast. Yeah. The broadcast. Yeah. It's, it's very polished today. Well, he had this knack for saying, you know, he was just like, he, he made you feel like he was just kind of sitting in your living room. Like, Hey, we, we've got no chance. We've got no shot. This is, this is a long shot for us to win this game. You know? It, so, I mean, he, he kind of like talked the language of the common fan more or less, you know, yeah. when, as he was describing the game. And I think that was part of, you know, his, you know, why he's so remembered and one of the greatest announcers in, uh, in the, in terms of Southern college football where, you know, he's kind of up on that pedestal where people were like, yeah. you know, he's just, he did such an amazing job of making you feel like he was, uh, you were, you know, he was sitting there with you, you know, during the game. 
It's been a couple of decades since we had a, a sportscaster in NFL that people love. Yeah. Yeah. Or newscaster for that matter as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the new generation is very different, right? Yeah. And they don't miss that response, right? right. Like Cosell was for different reasons back in the 70s. Yeah. Then, yeah. But after Cosell, then came Madden, mm-hmm. right? And then. It's Madden. There's been no one. That's right. Madden was probably the last of the great ones that just kind of, kind of said whatever you know, almost whatever was on his mind. <laughs> just kind of, you know. I think yeah. I think the closest guy right now might be Tony Romo. Yeah, yeah you're right. Say, yeah. Gets, has the potential. Right. Maybe yeah, he gets cool. more excited about the game itself <clears> than any other announcer I've heard. You know, color commentator. Um, I think, I think Tony. He, you know, but who does a better game, Thanksgiving game than than Madden, Madden where he's talking Madden. about the turducken and the, <laughs> the, the that, that was an emotional yeah. component, right? Yeah. He, his he became emotional. Yeah. And you shared in that emotion. Absolutely. And yeah. That was the thing, right? It was that once again, right? That emotional fusion between mm-hmm. the communicator and yourself that linked you to Madden. And that's why people love this guy, right? Right. The, yeah. Can, and that's what I hear in, in Tony Romo's voice. Like yeah. I hear his passion for the game. Yeah. And maybe he's got so much passion because he couldn't win a big game. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you hear yeah, that long, that regret. <laughs> so. Well, Carlos, um, how can people find out more about you? Um, where would you like them to go? Well, if you want to know more about me and what I've written and and will and will be publishing in next year, you can go to carlosalvarenga.com. That's it. And so, um, and that does a little bit more my work and things that are coming on. So, yep. uh, and then uh, yeah. yeah, that's the best way to find out. All, everything, all the interviews I do are are there, and so I'll be adding this one to that uh, okay. when it's ready. And yeah, I'm happy and to. Of course, there's Amazon. There's, uh, it's Amazon. Who... It's also available on. There's Kindle, like I said, there's audiobooks, and so right. every your preferred format. And you said you yeah. read the audiobook, so that's uh, you know that's nice when the author actually reads. I think that adds something yeah. to the book for sure. So, well, I right. love Audible, and I'll be uh, I'll be downloading your book for sure. Um, there you go. Thank you very to much. To. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Spotify just started adding audiobooks to their membership, so yeah. I don't know if you're on there yet, Carlos. I don't know I if don't that's know. check that one. Yeah, I know it's yeah. an audio comment on audible yeah subscribe to audible yes. spotify spotify just launched i think this week that they now have i think you can get 15 hours of audiobooks with your spotify subscription which i think now oh, wow. like, Ooh, do i need to close my <laughs> audible account that's gonna put a hurt possibly on yeah for sure so. of course you don't want to lose of course you're not going to lose your uh your other I don't know how that works yeah i haven't yeah. checked that do you lose your library if you no i don't think so i don't so, think so yeah um, that's the problem with all these digital platforms. <laughs> Libraries like captive. Yeah. You know? Um, Carlos, any last parting words you want to share with the audience? Just thank you to everyone who tuned in to the show. And thank yeah. you, Sean, for having me on. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. We'll be, uh, we'll definitely be posting a link on, uh, to your book on Amazon and also to, you know, where people can find out more, uh, Carlos. We thank you, man. This has been fantastic. We, or glad you could come on the show and it's, it's been a fun discussion. So thanks for joining us today. My All right. We're going to put you back in the green room from for, for just a second while we yeah. wrap up and then, uh, yeah, if you got a after about, show chat, if you I have know. time, I'm going to have to take a sip of the liquor. <laughs> okay. All right. Yep. Enjoy. Enjoy. We'll bring you back up in like 45 seconds.
All right. Good stuff. Oh. That was great. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Flew by again. Good book. Yeah. Definitely, I totally yeah. get why Rogan's shows are three hours now. You know, when we started, we tried <laughs> to get them like 20 or 40 minutes and they just keep yeah. getting longer. So. That's right. That's right. No, there's a, I love the, the scientific side of this, the chemistry, yeah, you know, so just much the like breaking it down. And yeah. Yeah, for like, yeah, there's, I can't wait to get the book and really, really dive into it because it's, yeah. it definitely feels like it goes a lot deeper than mm -hmm. um, even some yep. of the classics that we've, you know, that we've talked about. Absolutely. You know, so it's talk about Chidini all the time, but I think yeah. even this kind of new classic right here. That's right. Absolutely. Well, good stuff. Um, again, to all of our listeners, you can find us, uh, persuasionbythepike.com. You can find us on all of your podcast platforms, whether it's Spotify. Um, you know, Sean, I, say, I always say Stitcher Radio, but I just learned Stitcher Radio is like, I don't, I think I've sold out. Somebody else owns yeah. Stitcher Radio now. So Stitcher Radio is not a thing anymore, but we're on iTunes, Spotify. Uh, all of your platforms, wherever you download podcast, we're there and, uh, it's been fun. Uh, check out the book again. It is, um, uh, the, 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 the rules main, of persuasion, the rules of persuasion, how, how the world's greatest communicators convince, inspire, lead, and sometimes deceive. So check it out. Um, and again, uh, thanks to Carlos again for joining us. Again, we'll see you guys next week. Sean, I think it's uh, because of next week with the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, I'm still game for next Friday if uh, yeah. you want to do an episode. A Black Friday so, episode? Why not? Yeah, yeah. We'll do some, uh, we'll some Black, Black Friday sales on our podcast. <laughs> you can listen <laughs> maybe. For free. That's how big a discount. <laughs> That's right. Uh, to all of our listeners, thanks again, and we'll see you next time.